0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, January 8th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. The Obama administration's internal and public fights over surveillance, targeted killings overseas, and other assertions of executive power will, at best, leave a mixed legacy for the next occupant of the White House. Charlie Savage is a Washington correspondent for The New York Times. His new book is Power Wars, Inside Obama's Post-9-11 Presidency. We spoke this week. When President Obama learned of the authorities that he was inheriting with respect to surveillance uh, under the Patriot Act, uh, how did he respond? And was he being like Bush in that regard?
1: Aaron Powell So this is one of the the big questions this book grapples with. So let me explain a little bit about what this book is and then that will lead into the answer to your question. So this book is an investigative history. Of the first seven years of the Obama administration's national security policy making, especially its legal policy making. and uh, in the, and with that one chapter that's sort of a deeper history of surveillance now that we can see it. And I interviewed over one hundred and fifty current former officials, many of them I circled back to over and over and over again. And I tried to reconstruct sort of the behind the scenes deliberations over this unending series of dilemmas about things like detention surveillance interrogation secrecy leak investigations where it all came from why did they make the decisions they made what were the trade-offs they were encountering and so a lot of it is case studies where you're kind of on the, a fly on the wall in the room as they're tr- wrestling with something that doesn't have a you know great answer but they've got to make some decision um, and then arising from this, heap of stories that try to explain all these recurring friction points in post-9-11 America and why the rules don't give us a clear answer about what the right choice is or what the government can or can't do uh, is some uber questions. And one of them, maybe the biggest one, is people think Obama is acting like Bush. They are, from the left to the right, they're surprised that the guy who ran Or office in 2007, promising change from the global war on terror, has, with the exception of torture, uh, continued so many of the policies as he inherited them from the second-term Bush administration. Whether it's drone strikes, a massive surveillance state, military commissions holding people without trial, secrecy, and And he's intensified some of them. And he's intensified. Certainly, he he oversaw you know an unprecedented criminal crackdown on leakers, and he used drone strikes and targeted killing a much greater, much frequency than Bush did. Why? Why did this happen? Is he acting like Bush and so forth? So I, I went, part of the, the what the book tries to grapple with is, is why do people say that? Well, obviously, I just said why they said it. But, you know, is it true? And why is it true? And, and part of that scene turns out to turn on how you define acting like Bush. And it's easier to see now than it was during the Bush years, that when... Libertarians on the left and right and liberals uh, criticized Bush and Cheney for the policies they put in place after 9-11, and obviously there was all kinds of ferocious criticism. Uh, There were two different strands of critique. There was a rule of law critique and there was a civil liberties critique. So the civil liberties critique says policies like military commissions or torture or warrantless surveillance are inherently wrong, they're un-American, the state should not have that power vis-a-vis the individual. The rule of law critique is agnostic about whether those policies are correct and wise given the challenges posed by 21st century terrorism. But they say the president doesn't get to break the law just because he's commander-in-chief. And so if a federal statute says you must get a warrant to wiretap on US soil, if that doesn't make sense anymore, the president has to go to Congress and persuade lawmakers to remake the law so that it authorizes rather than forbids what it is he wants to do. And the problem with Bush was he was just secretly blowing through these legal constraints over and over by saying he's the commander-in-chief and the law doesn't matter, or he has higher law that trumps what we understand the law to be. So, uh, And you would hear these put together a lot. You know, Bush is violating the rule of law and he's violating civil liberties. But it, th- one of the ways in which they're very different is that one of them can be fixed. You know, Congress can come in and change the law. Uh, and courts can get involved and root things in statutory authority that seemingly before were happening unilaterally. And so that's what happened in the second term of the Bush administration. Congress passes the Military Commissions Act, passes with Obama's vote the FISA Amendments Act. The Intelligence Court takes these bulk data collection programs and roots them in the Patriot Act and provides court oversight to them and rules. And so if you think the problem with Bush was a rule of law problem, by January of 2009, uh, that problem is largely fixed. If you think the problem with Bush was acting like Bush means violating civil liberties, then the fact that Congress has blessed this it doesn't really matter, right? The, the the only way to fix the problem is to stop doing that thing. And when you look back at what Obama and the people he, that came into his administration um, were saying when they were at those rallies and those panel discussions and those so forth, criticizing Bush, overwhelmingly, not exclusively, but overwhelmingly, they were the ones making the rule of law critique. And that makes sense if you think about it, because Obama is a lawyer. Joe Biden is a lawyer, they've surrounded themselves, they're clearly most comfortable talking with and deliberating with people whose minds have been shaped by the law school experience, so they've surrounded themselves with lawyers and policymaking roles. Very different from Bush and Cheney, who are CEOs by mindset. And you know, to give one example out of 20, Bush's two secretaries of state, uh, Condi Rice and Colin Powell, neither of them are lawyers. Uh, Obama's two secretaries of state, Hillary Clinton and John Kerry, both lawyers. But that replicates itself through White House chiefs of staff and national security advisors and lower and lower. So the whole conversation is extremely legalized. And lawyers are, of course, most likely to look at something and analyze it through the lens of, is there legal authority for this thing? And so they saw the problem with Bush as being a rule of law problem, a problem that even though when Obama was on the campaign trail, especially in the primary, when he's trying to defeat Hillary Clinton... Uh, an appeal to liberal voters who are upset about Bush and Cheney, he didn't always make that clear. If you parse what he said later, that's really that's really what he was saying. And there's places where they were quite deliberately rewriting speeches to sort of leave room for themselves to be for some military commissions, just not the ones that Bush was using and so forth. Um, so that partially explains why there's this disconnect and they don't think they're acting like Bush. ACLU or maybe the Cato Institute thinks they are, and it's because they're they're defining acting like Bush differently. And so a story, this gets back to your question a million years ago, uh, uh, that illustrates this quite vividly that I tell in the book, um, one of these sort of fly in the wall stories, is how it was that Obama came to learn when he was newly inaugurated that he had inherited a program by which the NSA was collecting Americans' domestic phone records in bulk and how he decided to keep that program. This is the program that Snowden, of course, reveals the Patriot Act program four years later and it turns out there's no political support for it on the left or the right and leads to the USA Freedom Act and there's this sort of upheaval. Uh, you know, he, How is it he just keeps that thing? In retrospect, it's amazing he kept that, uh, especially at the very beginning of his administration when he was coming in as the change agent. This seems like something that he would have turned off. When he learned about it, so uh, I set the scene. I think it was February. I don't have the book in front of me. It was either February four or six, two thousand nine. Um, he's been president for a couple weeks now. Dick Cheney is starting to attack him for saying he's not going to use CIA black site prisons and torture, and he's saying there's going to be another attack on the U.S. and it's going to be Obama's fault. I think he just said that like the day before in a Politico interview. Later that afternoon, he's going to go talk to. The family members of people who were killed in the coal bombing and 9/11, who are upset that he's frozen the military commission proceedings at Guantanamo, uh, and want them to, you know, get on with it. So he knows that's happening, and he's come. It's about noon, and he's at the Situation Room, and there's a briefing that's been organized for him on the new surveillance, the surveillance programs that he's inherited, uh, and he's late. He comes in, he's chomping nicotine gum, so he's clearly a little stressed out. And sitting around the table, for the most part, are members of the deep state, the permanent national security bureaucracy, from the FBI director and lawyer, and the NSA director and lawyer, and Office of Director of National Intelligence's lawyer, and others who are there, and the Justice Department people, who were there during the Bush years and are now going to stay on. And, they, and he sits down at the top of the table with his new White House counsel, Greg Craig, to his left and Eric Holder, his newly confirmed attorney general to the right. And they say, okay, let us let's, let us know. So they walked through this long list of programs. And one of them is, sir, the NSA is collecting records of everyone's domestic phone calls we use it to hunt for hidden associates of terrorists and this is a program that president bush created unilaterally in 2001 after 9/11 uh, but it there, you know whether or not it, you know there were legal issues with it then in the intervening years the foreign intelligence surveillance court has begun blessing it as legal under an interpretation of the patriot act and the congressional oversight and, committees know about it. So this is not a rogue program. All three branches of government are on board. And it's really important. We we think if we had had it in place before 9-11, it would have stopped 9-11. And that, by the way, is a claim that um, once this was all revealed, did not withstand scrutiny. It was way overstated, but that's what they said to him at the time. And he says, okay, I'm, I guess I'm comfortable with what you're saying, but I want my lawyers to take a look. And he points to Greg Craig and Eric Holder. And they go off and they Look at it more carefully, and they don't disturb that initial decision to sort of put a little, few more controls on it, but essentially keep it. Uh, and so, among these many, many people, you know, I talked to so many people, and most of them were on background, and I, so I couldn't identify them. But I did negotiate with Greg Craig that he permitted me to say what he had said to me on the record when I asked him why did you why did you not go back to Obama once you really looked at this and say well, what is this? This is not something we should be doing. And he said, "Well, look, uh, you know, Eric Holder and I are both lawyers. We're both, in fact, former criminal lawyers. I was he was Craig was a former public defender. Um, Holder, obviously, a former prosecutor. Uh, and where that means we've done all these criminal trials, we're very familiar with the idea that the police sometimes collect people records of people's phone calls, not what they were saying, but just who was, you know, pen register, trap and trace device, who was saying." calling whom and when. And we know that the Supreme Court in 1979 ruled that the Fourth Amendment doesn't cover that. That was a case that involved one suspect's phone calls for a couple days. Not everyone's in the country's for five years. But the legal reasoning behind it didn't turn on volume. It was just once you've exposed something to a third party, like the phone company, you don't expect privacy over it. So, you know, you can it times a billion. It's, you still have a billion times zero. It, expectation of privacy is still zero. So there was no constitutional issue. And it seemed very important that the intelligence court had brought it under its oversight, that it was not a rogue program. And the intelligence community was telling us that it was uh, important. And so the task at that point was to get it under, make sure that it stayed within the bounds of what the court had overseen. You know, Because and so that's what we did. And you, you notice that that is a way of analyzing the question that a lawyer and a lawyerly-minded official would bring. Is there legal authority for this? If there's not, there's a problem. If there is, there's not a problem. And you know that illustrates this sort of what is the problem with Bush? What does it mean to act like Bush? Rule of law, not civil liberties mindset that this administration brought to bear on the problems as it encountered? And then, of course, as time goes on and... They face attacks like the underwear bombing in September, Christmas of 2009 and realize how politically vulnerable they are and that there is a successful attack. Everything they're trying to do from getting out of land wars in the Middle East to expanding health insurance will collapse and they will be failed, a failed one-term presidency. They harden in their approach and as long as they can point to legal authority, they're pretty much going to do that thing.
0: You start your book in the 1920s. What was uh, surveillance and uh, war powers? What did they look like then?
1: That's true. Well, I, like, Actually, I start the book in Christmas 2009 with an attempted bombing of an airliner. But I start my history of surveillance, which is Chapter 5 and then extends in Chapter 11, with the 20s. Uh, basically, it's the deep history of surveillance. Uh, in, the, in the chapter really focuses on what happened after 1978 to the end of the Bush administration. But it sort of makes the point that for a really long time, the United States, as a society and as a legal culture, has been struggling to grapple with um, surveillance technology, and the technology keeps sort of growing beyond legal limits and efforts to impose checks and balances on it, and there's periodic correction moments. So it's the end of the 19th century, really, where we have telegrams and uh, eventually telephones and long-distance communication by wire uh, begins. And it's qu- quickly, the government figures out you can tap the copper cable in the middle and pick up conversations. Uh, and, and then, But it's not clear what legal rules apply to that. And in 1928... Uh, the Supreme Court rules that the Fourth Amendment does not protect people's private phone conversations if they're tapped outside of their homes or offices. The idea is we have an expectation of privacy in our homes, but if someone's doing something way out on the street, that that's different. And that regime, and then Congress comes in and sort of bans wiretapping, although it continues for national security purposes. Uh, and then it's not until nineteen sixty seven that the Supreme Court realizes that that's just wrong, and the the law and the what the Constitution was trying to do um, has to protect private conversations no long no matter where it is that the government accesses them. And so it overturns that nineteen twenty eight ruling and then uh, in nineteen sixty eight Congress legalizes wiretaps for criminal purposes, what's called uh, the omnibus. Cr- Crime Act of 1968. Uh, And so that's sort of the deeper history of how it is that both in terms of Congress and in terms of the Supreme Court and what the Fourth Amendment has or does or does not say about private conversations communicated by long distance, uh, the country's been trying to get it right
0: and not always gotten it right. In the fight over stellar wind, which I'll ask you to... Uh, unpack just a, just a little bit. Uh, there was a fight that goes back to uh, Supreme Court decisions uh, during about uh, activity surveillance activities during wartime uh, when John Yoo wrote a, a memo uh, detailing uh, what he thought was the president's authority to engage in uh, certain kinds of surveillance. He sort of conveniently uh, left that out. So, what do we know uh, about uh, the? the fight that occurred in the 2000s about surveillance and how does it relate to these uh, very old court precedents? Aaron
1: Powell, So part of what I'm trying to do in this chapter is to harness the Snowden leaks of 2013 and then the huge wave of declassifications by the federal government which followed that to reveal... Well, it's been revealed now, but it's been kind of revealed in piecemeal form. And my effort, especially in chapter five of this book, is to piece that together and fill in some blanks with new reporting to present the first coherent uh, explanation of how surveillance law and technology evolved from 1978, when Congress first requires wiretap warrants for national security surveillance, to when Obama takes over. Um, so, to set up, to answer your question, sort of a setup of that is that technology changed between 1978 and 9-11 in a way that routed a lot of foreign-to-foreign foreign communications across United States soil. And secretly, unbeknownst to the public, uh, some secret legal opinions and so forth permitted uh, the government to tap those foreign-to-foreign foreign communications on U.S. soil without a warrant Uh, by arguing, which I think is correct, actually, that the the 1978 law did not apply to those kinds of communications. And that created the modern relationship between the NSA and telecom companies like AT&T, got the NSA into their facilities to sit on their network switches and grab or be handed by AT&T these communications. So, after 9-11, the equipment and the relationships were already there for what became known as the Stellar Wind Program, and this is where President Bush secretly authorized the NSA to violate FISA, the 1978 Act, to wiretap one-in domestic international communications without a warrant, and to collect bulk metadata, that's records about who was communicating with whom, kind of activity logs, but not what they said, uh, both from phone companies and scraping it off the internet backbone, who's emailing whom, in bulk. that, so that collection of activities warrantless wiretapping and warrantless metadata or bulk metadata collection is the stellar wind program and it uh, the problem with it is or was that uh, this law 1978 FISA did not uh, not only did not authorize it but forbade that activity and the Bush administration made the decision not to go to Congress and ask Congress to change the law in light of uh, what it saw as a pressing need to do much more Extensive surveillance and data collection in the search for terrorists, but asserted in secret memos that the president, as commander in chief, could override statutory limits on uh, <clears throat> on government surveillance. And that's what that's what you're referring to. Um, there's not a lot of Supreme Court precedent in about what surveillance activity is or is not permitted when the government is acting for foreign national security. Reasons. I think you, what you were referring to was uh, the Youngstown decision in 1952, which involved Harry Truman's seizure of steel mills during the Korean War, and the Supreme Court said, uh, you know, the, the, if the Congress had acted in 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 a way and that uh, forbade that, and the president had, could not invoke his war powers to override. Um, statutory regulation of what the government could do when presented with labor strikes. Uh, although it left open the possibility there was some reservoir of authority where Congress could not intrude. And one of the criticisms of the secret, then secret legal opinions used to justify Stellar Wind was, uh, you're, you're right, the Justice Department attorney who wrote them did not mention that case, which would seem to be the starting point for analyzing whether the president could break the law.
0: You detail here this uh, fight over what was known as the thin thread program. Uh, what was that and why did everyone uh, seem to believe that it was illegal? I mean spe- even within the NSA.
1: So this now we're back to the late 90s. This is before 9-11 and Stellar Wind. And as I, I mentioned, the sort of technology had kept changing. It was creating these, <clears throat> these pressures to um, figure out how the NSA was going to keep doing its job. Uh, within sort of an obsolete legal framework that was written for an analog and pre-fiber optic era, pre-internet era uh, communication streams. And so part of the issue was that So they had figured out that they could collect both ends foreign stuff without a warrant, but they still thought that they had to get a warrant for one end domestic stuff. And meanwhile, because of the internet and the growth of global communications, um, in the 90s, there was this, this explosion in the, the volume of data that's coursing around the global network. And the NSA was really drowning in it. Its systems could not keep up with this abundance of riches. And there were efforts underway in the NSA to modernize, uh, and there were rival bureaucratic proposals and, and sort of technical solutions that were on the table. One of them, uh, which becomes important after 9-11, is what's called thin thread. And it was a proposal by a group of uh, you know, computer scientists and, and uh, mathematicians to create a system that would use automated analysis of metadata, that is sort of stuff that's not the content of what people are saying, but their patterns of life, who they're talking to, what they're doing, to s- out at the point of collection, select um, who's most likely to be of interest for some kind of foreign intelligence reason. This person, some hidden associate of someone that they're already looking at, two or three steps removed, and it would only send back to Fort Meade, where the NSA is um, headquartered, stuff that was more likely to be interesting, so that the the haystack would be smaller, there would be a higher proportion of needles of interest to hay of you know irrelevant communications, so they would start to get a handle on... Um, this this you know overwhelming fire hose of, of data, uh, and ultimately the NSA uh, didn't do that. But it, what what's interesting in this part is, in 1999, ahead of the millennium, uh, there was intelligence that Al Qaeda was planning to hit the United States, which turned out to be true. Right, there was a terrorist captured um, in December of '99 who was planning to go explode a device at Los Angeles Airport. And he was crossing the Canadian border. He was. He was not caught through surveillance. He was caught by a um, vigilant border guard, uh, thankfully. Uh, but there was a. when there this intelligence chatter was rising that something was happening. They didn't know what it was yet. There was a proposal to turn on Thin Thread, which was a system designed for um, foreigners' data abroad, where there's no legal r- rules domestically and turn it on to stuff that had one end on domestic soil, so Americans, stuff being sent to and from Americans. And the hope was that especially that data analysis component might uncover hidden cells and identify who it was they should be looking for. Uh, And the NSA said, no to that proposal because it would be illegal because the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act forbade it, and the Justice Department uh, backed up that decision to sort of the disgruntlement of of the thin threads proponents in the uh, in the agency, and it just sort of shows. And then and then after 9 11, when they uh, started the Stellar Wind program, which did much the same thing and even more aggressively in certain respects. Uh, now, the NSA was willing to do it. And why was that? The reason was The question was whether FISA, the 1978 law, mattered or not. And in 1999, the NSA and the Justice Department thought the government had to obey that law. And after 9-11, the Bush administration legal team said it didn't. And that made all
0: the difference. When did the Bush administration make that assertion?
1: Aaron uh, Originally, October 4, 2001. Uh, so a couple of weeks after 9/11, and all this is sort of rapidly ramping up both in the office of the vice president and in the NSA, uh, sort of in that immediate af- aftermath when Ground Zero is still smoking and there's just everyone is terrified that there's more sleeper cells out there that are going to do a follow-up wave of attacks. And it was initially, I think, envisioned as a short-term uh, program for that sort of immediate moment of a, of emergency. But then it, it turns out with tools like this, kind of once they're in place, even if they haven't actually done anything, even if they haven't actually thwarted an attack, it's very, very hard bureaucratically, this is sort of one of the lessons of the post-911 era, extremely difficult to turn it off again. Because if you're the official who says, all right, flip the switch, you know, we're done here. And then something blows up the next day you will be blamed politically and bureaucratically whether it's fair or not. You know, the blood is on your hands, sir, if you turn this off. And so one of the you know the interesting things that we can now see in that chapter about how Stellar Wind was put in place, legal challenges to it, and the struggles of the Intelligence Court and the Bush administration and the Obama administration to sort of keep the pieces in place despite the sort of original sin of its dubious legality in the first place, uh, all stem, that, all those agonies, that years of, of turbulence stems from this desire not to be the one who put the tool back in the toolbox that might turn out to be important tomorrow, even
0: if it hasn't been important until now. You ask a very interesting question of all presidential candidates that you can get to answer the question, and it deals with the, uh, what that candidate believes is the unilateral authority of the president. Would you mind uh, telling me what that is?
1: Well, I think you're referring to a so in, to a questionnaire, a survey project I um, carried out in the fall of 2007 and did it again ahead of the 2012 election uh, in which I asked all the, ahead of the Iowa caucuses in the New Hampshire primary, uh, I asked all the sort of major candidates in the first time, it was of both parties, obviously there wasn't a Democratic primary last time, Uh, to answer a series of questions about what they believed the scope and limits of their powers would be if voters entrusted them with the presidency. And the reason I did that was I had to spend a great deal of time in the Bush years um, writing about presidential power, writing about um, the expansion of executive power and, and, and sort of the many ways in which the Bush administration had been establishing that a president cannot be bound when he's acting as commander in chief by laws and treaties and expanded executive secrecy. And we had this explosion of signing statements where he could sign something into law and nevertheless disobey provisions of it, or at least claim he could, um, and so forth. And I'd written a book about that and, and so forth, uh, And but then in the early presidential campaign, none of the debate moderators were asking the questions i thought were front and center about the future shape of american democracy and the separation of powers you know it's just it's they're not topics that are made for tv they're not topics that are made for tv journalists to grapple with um, and so eventually i decided to uh ask the questions myself and at the time i worked for the boston globe which is has a sort of moment of particular influence right ahead of new hampshire because it's the main paper uh, for that region. And the candidates, uh, fortunately for me and maybe for the world, uh, uh, decided to answer and engage on questions like, do you think the president as commander in chief, you know, under what circumstances, if any, can the president disregard surveillance laws like the Foreign Intelligence Act, disregard anti-torture laws? When would you use signing statements? Do you think executive privilege lets you keep things secret from Congress that are happening out of the agency level, not inside the White House, and so forth and so on? All right. So Barack Obama's response. So Obama uh, was clearly, and in this interesting. Yes, yeah, he he engaged, and then that his answers have become of, of enduring interest since he went on to be president. Uh, he certainly was uh, took a, a conservative, that is to see a mainstream or limited view of the president's power, uh, and was to act it in contrary to a statute. Uh, he did he was clearly. V- Opposed to the idea that the president and his commander-in chief at least willy-nilly can override statutes at his own discretion whether it's surveillance or torture or anything else uh, he was opposed to the Bush administration's very expansive view of that kind of uh,
0: claimed authority okay so with that as the backdrop uh, president uh, Barack Obama becomes president so uh, what was the uh, what were some moments early in his presidency that indicated that uh, Perhaps the uh, powers of the presidency were uh, bigger than he thought they were before. So you you have to identify which power of the presidency you're talking
1: about. I, I think with the narrow exception so far of the Bowie-Bergdahl uh, Taliban prisoner swap in which the executive branch violated or overrode a law requiring uh, Congress to be told 30 days before anyone leaves Guantanamo – Obama has, in fact, stayed away from that kind of commander-in-chief override power. He's been loathed to assert it. And, in fact, in places where it kind of looks like that's what he's doing, he's always said he's doing something else. Uh, so, there, But there are ways, you know, he's come up with sort of creative, strained interpretations of how the statute actually authorizes what he's doing, as opposed to saying, statute clearly prohibits what I'm doing um, but I'm oh, no, the statue's unconstitutional because I'm the commander in chief. So you can look to like the War Powers Resolution and fight in 2011 about his intervention in Libya and so forth, and that's what's that's what's happening. So what we just set up in this conversation doesn't quite run into a clear contradiction, but there are ways in which there's clearly ways in which he's. Uh, evolved in office, I guess, uh, about his. He uses the, his words. Yes. Uh, so one of them was that one of the questions I had asked was under what circumstances, if any, could a president bomb another country absent an imminent threat to the United States or congressional authorization ahead of time? And he basically said the Constitution does not give the power the president the power to do that, to start a war um, without Congress if the country is not facing an imminent threat. And then in 2011, he violates that principle by, in fact, uh, ordering the US to take part in NATO's air war in Libya without prior congressional authorization. He also has had a more uh, robust, shall we say, view of executive privilege to keep information secret from Congress out of the agency level. We saw that with the uh, fight over the subpoena for documents related to the Fast and Furious uh, gun traffic investigation, for example. and in general, I part of what I map out in this book, uh, I mean, th- those are the big you know those are some big ones. I, I was primarily asking about, oh and he uses signing statements, I think, more aggressively than he had indicated he would in the campaign to um, nullify provisions of, of statutes that he's signing into law. Not nearly as aggressively as Bush, not remotely as aggressively, but he'd sort of indicated he wasn't really going to do it and he did do it. He's kind of rehabilitating that device. Uh, he generally, And I get through this in Chapter 12 primarily, because this is mainly a book about national security, but you can't talk about this stuff without talking about executive power generally. And Obama's evolution on executive power and embrace of a more robust view of what he could do unilaterally uh, primarily happens in the domestic sphere. We're talking now about um, his famous executive actions on immigration. Uh, and uh, not defending the Defense of Marriage Act uh, even though Congress is unwilling to, uh, to, to, to overrule or to, to revoke that law and, and th- how he sort of re- reimagines federal education policy through aggressive use of waivers and the No Child Left Behind law rather than Congress. And, and uh, I think a lot of that has to do with how circumstances change. I'm not saying this by way of excuse for him. I'm trying to explain how you know the world has changed. And in 2008 and 2009, the foil for Obama and the people around him was Bush and Cheney. They were going to not be like Bush and Cheney. They were going to, you know, he was the constitutional law instructor who revered the Constitution and was going to respect the role of Congress and and uh, uh, and fight the war against Al Qaeda within a framework of law and so forth. And over time, that shifts. The foil becomes the Republican House of Representatives and now the Republican Congress in general and especially the sort of post-Tea Party Republican caucus that has great difficulty acting. Um, and, you know, and, of course, it's a, ha- a hazy line between a dysfunctional Congress that simply you know, would vote for something if something came to the floor but can't... Get its act together enough for a variety of reasons to bring that to the floor, and a Congress that simply doesn't want to do the thing the president wants to do, whether it's you know raising the debt ceiling or or whatnot. Um, but he becomes more and more willing to act unilaterally and sort of challenging Congress to uh, push back against him, or being willing to litigate in court uh, rather than saying he's going to do everything through Congress. I think the the Libya intervention when the United Nations had authorized a, uh, a, a an air war to keep Gaddafi from slaughtering Arab Spring people in Benghazi, uh, but which came right in a moment of sort of peak dysfunction for the new Congress, uh, where Tea Party or Republicans were refusing to... Vote with Speaker Boehner on keeping the government open, and the whole you know the, we were careening from one closure crisis to the next, and everyone was sort of bitter and going home. And there was the reality was at that point there was no way the government was going to the Congress was in a position to vote for a war um, before Gaddafi's forces would just sweep into Benghazi and kill everybody, uh, and that presented Obama with this dilemma. The whole book is about dilemmas and sort of trade-offs and bad choices and you know, choosing among suboptimal options because there is no perfect solution. So he could violate his principles at that point and save those people in Benghazi. Or he could live up to his principles, his prior stated principles, and do nothing because Congress was unable to act, even though it looks like congressional leaders of both parties were saying, just do it, just do it. Um, And so he violates his principles and he saves those people. And then, of course, Libya becomes a disaster, but that's separate from... The lesson, the separation of powers lesson, which is if you ask Congress for authority and they're too dysfunctional to act or too opposed to you to act, it takes away your power. But if you act on your own and wait for them to definitively repudiate you, that same dysfunction can add to your authority because if they Congress was never able to organize itself to come up with any kind of clear response. Uh, they They couldn't vote to... Authorize the Libya war to call for it, to, troops to be pulled out to, or to be you know provide support to NATO allies, but not do direct bombing ourselves. All three were voted down, and it never therefore it just sort of was a mess, and and it be, was established as a president precedent that a president could move on.
0: There was a distinction drawn at some point uh, in the Obama administration, and I don't know where it has it has its roots either in the Bush administration or even sooner. That uh, when evaluating uh, terrorism suspects overseas, that there was this difference, uh, at least among Americans uh, overseas, that there was this difference between due process and judicial process. Could you talk about that a little bit? Aaron
1: Powell Yes. I think what you're referring to is the uh, dispute over the targeted killing of an American citizen, Anwar al alaki Uh, Who the government says was uh, he started off? He was born in New Mexico. He became a sort of radical Muslim cleric. Eventually, goes to Yemen. uh, Is all over the internet delivering sermons, calling for Muslims in the West to randomly kill Americans or British or you know civilians. Uh, Sort of a jihadi propagandist, and the government claims that he. Uh, eventually evolved into an operational terrorist who was not just apologizing and encouraging attacks, but actually coming up with specific attacks, in particular the Christmas 2009 uh, attempted underwear bombing of the Detroit-bound airliner. And that raised this question, um, which was, uh, he's in Yemen. He's in rural Yemen. It's sort of a failed state, uh, bad lands. There's no... Effective government control. Uh, there's no police force that can go arrest him. Uh, we have permission from the what government there is in Yemen, which is basically based in Sanaa, that we can bomb Al Qaeda positions out the countryside from the air, but we cannot put troops on the ground. That's in you know sort of as a matter of international law and sovereignty. If we're going to respect that, if uh, it raises the question, if the United States sees this guy, figures out where he is. And has, is looking at him through a drone, uh, and he's not can't can shoot a missile at him. Uh, and the, you, you, the there's a whole backstory about how the Obama legal team wrestled with this sort of unprecedented question: Can the government kill someone without a trial? What do you do though if there's not a chance for a trial because he's not in custody? We don't have trials in absentia, you know, which is something I think civil libertarians who are opposed to this. The fact the government did this, I think, rarely wrestle with. Do we, you know, The alternative is a trial in absentia, is that what we want this country to evolve into? And um, so eventually they decide, well, look, if he was not a citizen, clearly they could take a shot. This is a congressionally authorized war, he's part of the enemy and he's attacking us. So either as a matter of law of war or a matter of self-defense, uh, the missile top shot could be taken. And then the question is, does the fact that he's a US citizen change that? And they looked to various precedents, um, usually involving detainees, not a killing on the battlefield or the claimed battlefield, and said, "No, it doesn't matter." And so, the, and part of that was, you know, so the Constitution says the government shall not take the life of someone who has constitutional rights without due process of law. And they were very secretive about this for quite a long time. Um, Finally, they sort of started talking a little bit about it in speeches and so forth, and eventually, I fought a, along with the ACLU a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit and got their legal memo out. But p- the question is, well, how? What do you do with this Fifth Amendment issue that doesn't attach to foreigners being killed abroad by Americans? And as as uh, Attorney General Eric Holder put it in a speech, you know, due process of law does not is, is always mean court process, judicial process. And due process can mean, this is their claim, uh, you know, executive branch officials and lawyers and talking behind closed doors amongst themselves whether the intelligence uh, amounts to sufficient evidence that the person is who they think he is, and that makes that the person targetable, you know, which is a very unsatisfying thing on its face, you know, that doesn't sound. I think our instinct is that sounds pretty alarming. Then you know, what's the check and balance on that? What's the independent oversight on that? And what if they get it wrong? You know, the whole idea of a court is to not make mistakes, and the government makes mistakes all the time. On the other hand, the dilemma is he's not in custody, and so the alternative is, I guess, uh, unless and until he's ever captured alive somehow, even though he's in a place that has no government, uh, we just hope that the terrorists screw it up if he is who they say he is. Um, it's a terrible dilemma. And so and that, that doesn't seem very satisfying either. We just sort of had to sit there and, and you know, hope the bomb doesn't go off like it didn't go off on that underwear bomb attack. Um, so that's what they came up with. And the precedent um, you know, remains sort of quite a striking one. The government can, under these least limited circumstances, kill an American deliberately without a trial, something that Bush never did. He, he did, in what we think is the first drone strike, kill an American, but the target of that strike was a non-American sitting next to the American, um, which may or may not make much of a difference depending It does, certainly does legally. Um, maybe it doesn't make much difference if you're the collateral
0: damage. Trevor Burrus How did the Obama administration, in your view, respond uh, to the release of all of these uh, NSA Documents. I know that uh, you said that they followed up with a, a wave of declassifications. In, in some ways, to explain the actual functional uses of a lot of these uh, NSA programs. But how did they handle that? In your view, right? Well,
1: so there. You know, when Snowden happens, uh, you know, it's a stunning thing that goes through the national security state. Uh, they had been through the WikiLeaks disclosures, which should really be called the Bradley Chelsea Manning disclosures now that we know that it was really one source behind this massive trove but those were still none of those were top secret you know they were at most secret uh, they weren't at all the sort of crown jewels stuff that uh, we now know about from from mr. Snowden uh, and the you know at first there's sort of a circle the wagons and don't talk about it at all and don't correct things that maybe are being mistakenly misreported, like what prism is and isn't and so forth, and it sort of allows They start to see that not explaining themselves and just trying to sort of pretend it didn't happen and not uh, that people don't know these things now is not productive because it allows what is in their view, and I think in some places is their view was correct, you know, mistaken reporting to, and overly alarmist interpretations of things, to settle in as conventional wisdom of that's what's actually happening, and in particular, and some of this has to do with what the programs were, like Prism, and some of it has to do with just there's a raw capability, but then there's maybe legal controls on how that's used, just like a gun can be used to kill anyone, but you're not supposed to use it to. You know, willy-nilly, shoot someone walking down the street for no reason, et cetera. And so they declassify. They started to declassify foreign intelligence surveillance court rulings and court-imposed rules on how the programs were used. They sort of did that slowly. And then through Freedom of Information Act litigation and so forth, they were kind of forced or To the extent that the government is not a uniform entity, but a collection of people who might have different views on things, those who wanted to be more transparent uh, were able to prevail, because there was litigation, to declassify you know, inspector general reports and so forth, going way back in time so that we could see how these where these things came from, how they developed, what problems had developed with them, how they had tried to address those problems, whether they had addressed those problems, uh, and get a handle on what was going on. Uh, Obama, separately from that, then that raised the question of reform. Should there be reform? Uh, Obama, I think, initially and the people around him initially were of the view that this was all fine. And if people just understood that there were these controls, they would be, you know, satisfied. And uh, it was all legal because, you know, the intelligence court had said it was legal. Um, and after a while, They started to, I think, internalize the lesson, or not the lesson, but the the notion that it might not be good enough. Even if the intelligence court has looked at this and said it's okay, or the intelligence committees have looked at it and said it's okay, there seemed to be, uh, across the ideological spectrum, uh, some dissatisfaction by Americans with uh, the fact that the government was doing these things legal or not, especially collecting records of everyone's domestic phone calls, And added to that dispute about whether it really was legal or the intelligence court had had sort of rubber stamped a theory that no one thought was legitimate once we could look at it. Uh, This is the Patriot Act theory that something that is a provision that says they can get things that are relevant turns out to mean they can get everything as long as they only look at things that are relevant later. Um, So that pushes them toward... um, uh, embracing eventually what becomes the USA Freedom Act to get the government out of the business of bulk collection of domestic data, at least under the authorities we know about. And then separately they're juggling with diplomatic crises. As you know, you're listening to Angela Merkel's phone cell phone and, and so forth, and they and you're the people are outraged that they're wiretapping the United Nations in New York and sort of suggesting, like, can they really uh you know, keep the U.N. in the U.S. if they're just going to do that. And they they sort of pull back on various um, uses of foreign surveillance aimed at foreigners and try to sort of at least say that they're only going to use it for security threats and not for spying on things like trade talks and will have higher level review of when foreign leaders are, are wiretapped. Um, so that's how they responded to it. Uh, you know there was recently some reporting in The Wall Street Journal showing that they were continuing to spy on Netanyahu, uh, but with White House knowledge, I guess this time, as opposed to just the agency doing its own thing uh, during the Iran agreement talks. Uh, so and I, you know, I'm, I'm skeptical that they're totally leaving the UN alone in New York, but I have no basis for that other than my, you know, my instincts.
0: Charlie Savage is a Washington correspondent for The New York Times. His new book is Power Wars, Inside Obama's Post-9-11 Presidency. You can watch a forum for the book at Cato.org.